0: Okay, hey, good morning, everybody. Glad that you guys are here. Hopefully you're, are, you are excited about hearing a word from God today. Hopefully there is something in the message today or the fellowship or the worship or something that just strikes your heart and just makes you say it was worth it to show up together in person and worship together. Even if you're out there online, I know that God has something for us Whatever that is, whatever nugget he pulls out, um, there's something that is going to bless you today. And I'm certain of that, which is why I'm excited every week to get up here and be able to teach, because it's just my part. And I know that no matter how badly I botch my part, God still is going to do something amazing. And so we have have that confidence. Hey, before we get going in the message, I want to take just a minute and kind of address or talk about what's going on in the world. You know, I was having a conversation before service that so many people look at what's happening right now in the world uh, in general and think, well this is as bad as it's ever been you know, and the, the logical question from that is, do you think the end times are coming? Do you think it's this is it? And I would point all the way back to thousands of years ago when gospels like the Gospel of Mark that we're in today, when that was written, and look what was going on in their world. I think they pretty much thought, this is it, right? Here it comes. Um, and it's been that way throughout history. So there's nothing we face today that is any worse than what has been going on all throughout history. But that doesn't mean that it's not significant. It doesn't mean that we don't need to look at it and see, especially in the context of, the, of teaching the Word, how that applies to looking at life as it is today today. But I want to specifically talk about what's going on in Afghanistan right now. It is is a terrible time to be over there. If you're either an Afghan citizen or an American who is over there, or whatever the reason is that you're over there, or maybe you're a service member who has been there, or or family of someone who has been over there, um, it's tempting to look at what's going on, start pointing fingers of blame, saying somebody dropped the ball, somebody messed up, this is terrible, this shouldn't be happening. And, and some of those things may be true, but that's not what I'm here to debate. Scripture promises us that no matter what happens in this world, if we allow God to use it for his glory, he will do just that and use it for our good. So you look at something that's as crazy and as dangerous. People are People are dying over there. Christians are being martyred for their faith over there right now. But God promises us, number one, that he is sovereign. There's nothing that's happening now that he didn't know was going to happen. There's nothing happening now that he's like, oh, no, what do I do now? You know, God never says that ever. So it's our job then to hold on with faith and expectancy that what is happening over there, what is happening in the world, God will use it. And so our job is to figure out what's our role in all that. And I think at the very least, as Christians here in this body, our role is to pray for that country. Pray for those who have served there and who may be looking at it thinking it was all a waste. Families, individuals who literally left a part of themselves over there whether it was through past service or even now, as it's all being evacuated. Again, Christians being martyred, things that are happening over there. You think it's all a waste. But I had somebody say something last week that I saw, and and it was just, I'll be honest, it was a social media post. But it resonated with me so well. And that was the idea that in that country, that is dark so often that the presence of American forces, the presence of even American contractors and and the military was an opportunity for the light of Christ to shine, even briefly, in a place that doesn't get that very often. And so we have the assurance that whatever we start, God is going to continue. So just because we can't see, oh, I, I shared the gospel with somebody and I don't know if they got it or not, and then we left, and now we're not there, so we can't finish that work God promises he'll take those things and finish them. So we have that assurance. We have that knowledge that for a brief time, the word of God, the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, the gospel, and even if not explicitly spoken, Americans are associated with the gospel of Jesus in large part. And so we were an influence in that area. And even if there's just a spark or a glimmer left there as we have left as a, as a country, as a, as a formal influence, God's influence is still there. And his will is going to be done. So we can look at that. But let's take a moment, though. I want to pray over everybody who is affected by that, those who are still behind, those who will be affected in the future, those who are in danger right now this very day of paying the price for their... For their at the very least, for what country they have aligned with, but in large part of being disciples of Christ, and they're going to pay the price for that. I also want to lift up other people here locally. Our worship, good part of our worship team, our youth pastors, the Carson family, um, Leah tested positive for COVID last week, and so that whole family is still quarantining. We didn't have youth last weekend. We're not having it this weekend um, they're staying aside now they're thankfully they're feeling more or less okay but then also our kind of our parent church that we launched out of Jubilee Fellowship Church um, was decimated their staff by COVID in this last week and so they're not even having services today um, that's on that's online but they're not having services in person anymore uh, this weekend anyway But they've been hit very hard. And again, thankfully, as far as I know, most everybody is doing okay. But there's so much chaos that's going on in the world that I think we just need to take a second and intentionally pray for that. So will you join me? Father, we just we thank you, Lord, that we have your word as an assurance that no matter how chaotic, no matter how dark, no matter how out of control things seem to be from our viewpoint, Lord, you have a higher viewpoint. And you know that all things work together for our good and all things work together for your glory. And so, Lord, we thank you for that assurance that just because we can't see it, we can't figure it out, we don't know how things are going to work, Lord, you already know. You already know. And so, Lord, I lift up all those people who have been impacted by what's going on in Afghanistan, those who have served over there, families, people who have served, people who are currently serving, and those who are left behind, whether it's citizens of America or citizens of Afghanistan, anybody who has been left behind over there to pay the price and to pay the consequences for the fact that the forces of darkness are still there and are still very real. Lord, I thank you that in the end we know that that you win. And we know that we're on the winning side. We are on the side of light. And so, Lord, help us to know how to pray for those people over there. We pray security. We pray safety. We pray peace. We pray healing over those who need it. Lord, more than anything, we just pray that your sovereign will is done in that area. And we thank you for how you will use us, how you have used our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, to accomplish your sovereign will in that place. And so, Father, nothing is for loss, and we thank you for that knowledge. We lift up the staff, our staff, Jubilee Fellowship staff, everybody who's impacted by this COVID disease. We lift them all up to you, and Lord, just ask that you would heal them. Heal them in the name of Jesus. Restore them to where you intended them to be and give them peace and give them comfort and give them a feeling of just knowing that they are not out of control, that you are still in control. Father, let that be what we walk with today. Join the Lord knowing that we don't have to figure it out because you already have. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Thank you. Let's get into this message. It is It is in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus the Servant Messiah. If you've missed any of the previous messages, we're in week four. Um, go back to our website or, uh, or YouTube or Facebook, and you can check out the archives and the previous messages because we kind of set everything up. I don't want to go back too far into that, but the Gospel of Mark, like all the other Gospels, is written for a reason. It's re- written to a specific audience at a specific time. Now, that obviously translates into us and how we live today. But I'm going to show you how, what was going on in Rome. That's the audience that the Gospel of Mark was written to originally. It was Roman converts. Some of them were Jewish converts. Some of them were were pagan converts, Gentiles, who had converted. They had heard the Gospel message of Jesus, had decided they wanted to be followers of Jesus, but they didn't know how that applied to their life. They were hoping it was going to put an end to all the chaos. Can you think about a gospel, somebody who has witnessed or heard the gospel of Jesus shared with them in Afghanistan right now? And you're seeing the darkness close in. You're seeing the forces of evil close in. You're maybe, in many cases, fearing for your life at this very moment. And you've heard the gospel of Jesus, and you're having to decide right now, do I go back and fall in with with what all the the people with guns around me want me to believe? Or am I going to try and hold on to that word that I heard from these people that shared it with me about this guy named Jesus? And you'd probably be reconciling, just like this first century church audience of Mark, you'd be thinking, if I follow Jesus, how's this going to save me? If I follow Jesus, is this going to put a hedge up around my house, around my loved ones, and am I going to be safe from the guns and things that are coming my way? That's probably in large part what you'd be basing your decision on. That's what the first century church was doing. They were seeing all the things that Nero was doing around them, and they were saying, okay, tell me how Jesus is going to fix all this. That's what they had to struggle with. And so Mark writes his gospel specifically to that group who are trying to figure it out. And rather than to say, well, he's going to roll in with with hordes and angel armies and he's going to decimate your enemies, what does he say? Mark 10.45, the first thing, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're sitting there looking for an answer to all your problems, hearing about this Messiah that we're asking you to follow came to give his life, And to serve you, you'd probably be struggling to reconcile, how's that going to keep me safe? Mark's gospel doesn't deal with that end of it. Mark's gospel says, look, by emphasizing the humanity of who Jesus Christ is and the way that he was able to overcome the forces of evil that were arrayed against him and the things that he went through. By looking at that, by studying how he did it in his human flesh rather than in his deity, that can help give you some wisdom on how to navigate what's coming on. And this combination of of serving in strength and love is what the power comes from. And that's what this gospel is trying to, to relay. So last week, let's go into it. Last week, we saw Jesus being baptized. Now, in typical... The gospel of Mark forms, Well, Mark is the shortest gospel, and it really it, it doesn't have a lot of fluff in there. It doesn't have a lot of extra verbiage. In fact, it takes some pretty massive events and boils them down to about two lines. Look at the baptism of Jesus from last week again, Mark 1, 10 and 11. Only two verses. The other gospels expand on this quite a bit. But it says, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now the other gospels expand on that quite a bit, but what's important to know is that this fatherly blessing was the first thing that Jesus got before he went out and began his ministry. So prior to that, he was living his life. He was living his life at home. He was growing. He was learning scriptures. He was doing all kinds of things. But as he got ready to actually begin his ministry, to really fulfill his destiny, the first thing that happened is that he got his father's blessing. That's the very first thing that happened to him. And so he was able then to serve and to love and to go through all the trials that came at him sure of his place, sure of who he was, his identity in the Father, who the Father said he was, not all the accusations coming his way, but who the Father said he was. And that assurance gave him everything he needed. Assurance of purpose gave him what he needed. And he would need that assurance of purpose because what happened immediately after being baptized, he came up out of the water, the devil lined, and he got the word from heaven, this is my son, so what happened? Did he take him and his disciples and go to a buffet and, and relax and eat and chill out and figure out their marketing strategy and how are we gonna their hundred-day plan on how, okay, now how are we gonna do this effectively? Did he do all those things? Anyone? What's the very next thing he does? We see that in Mark 1, 12 and 13. And immediately, immediately meaning, immediately. The Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Two verses. That's a pretty concise description of a pretty big event. Four verses altogether if you include the baptism along with the temptation in the wilderness. Matthew and Luke all expand this into multiple verses multiple verses and, and paragraphs, but, and I'm going to address some of those to fill in some of the gaps that we'll miss here in Mark. But you ever wonder about that scripture? Like, what's the point? Jesus begins his ministry. Like, if you were writing a book, it would just be, okay, Jesus grew up, and one day he was commissioned by his father, and he began his ministry. And that would pretty much be the end of it. why do you think it immediately documents that he went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Let's talk about that. Let's, let's dig into this a little bit and pull it apart. So those two verses, Mark 1, 12, and 13, are really going to be the core of what we look at. But we're going to use other scripture to kind of illuminate what's happening there. First of all, let's get into this. Mark 1 12, and immediately. So we only have to go two words into it before we find something that we need to look at a little bit closer. The word immediately, it's a Greek verb, it's an adverb, and it just it's pronounced eutheos. And the definition just means with no delay. It literally means immediately, but it means nothing, nothing happened in between. With no de- he didn't go and rest for a couple days. He didn't have a nice dinner. He just immediately went to it. Now, Mark in his gospel uses that word more than all the other ones put together. He uses that word a lot. And it just, he uses it to, to show how Jesus' ministry was one of, of urgency, It wasn't weeks and months and years in between the things that he did. He went from one to the other to the other because he was driven and he had a purpose. And the Lord God gave him a reason and said, this is what you're on earth for. And he set about to do that. He didn't go on vacations. He didn't take days off. He was single-minded, focused on accomplishing the mission that God had given him. Now, what's that mission? Anybody know? It's not a trick question. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, just says it like this. The one who practices sin is the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, here it is. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did the Son of God appear? To destroy the works of the devil. And so the moment that Jesus is commissioned by his Father, this is my Son, in him I am well pleased. Here is the Holy Spirit being deposited into him at that moment, he doesn't doesn't relax and take a couple days off to regroup. He immediately, Scripture says, gets down to the business of destroying the works of the devil. And so how does he destroy the works of the devil? By separating himself from the works of the devil? By jumping in right in the middle of the fight immediately. Let's look at the next word. And the Spirit Brought him. Brought him. Brought is, is something we need to look at. It's another Greek word. These are, it's all Greek translation, by the way. Ekbalo is that word brought. And it means this. It doesn't mean like, hey, come on. Let's go out here. I got something to show you. Brought literally means to compel one to depart or even to cast out. To lead one forth or away with a force which cannot be resisted. That's what that word translates as. Now, depending on yours, I use the New American Standard. Your translation may say compelled. It may say drove. It may even use the word impelled, which is even more accurate, I think. But that same word, that same word ekbalo for brought, is used any time Jesus or his disciples exercise their authority, especially over the demonic. Mark one thirty four. When it says, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and and cast out many demons. Cast out is the same word there, ekbalo. The same word we're seeing as the Spirit driving Jesus. It's It's a burden. It's a burden and a strength and a power that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced something where the Holy Spirit spoke to you so loudly, put such a heavy burden on your heart that you had literally no choice but to do what it was saying now many of us fight that all the time here's an example this is just a worldly example the other day i was walking along and i looked down and i saw some garbage and immediately the spirit said you should pick that up and put it in there and it wasn't just like oh just pick up litter it was literally in our parking lot and the holy spirit said you saw it there yesterday and you didn't pick it up you're walking by it today how do you expect other people to care about the church I have given you if you don't care enough to pick up a piece of garbage? And I thought, I'll get it on the way by when I come back. I'll get it because I'm heading, I'm heading down here now, Holy Spirit, so I'll be right back. I walked about five feet and heard, go back and pick that up. And I went, be right with you. A <laughs> couple more feet. And here's what I heard. Every step you take outside of what I've commanded you to do is just work you're going to have to redo. Okay. Go back and I'll pick up. Now I have to take it inside, further delaying what I was going to do down here. That's a burden from the Holy Spirit that you can't. It's a funny example, but that's how it works. And that's the kind of burden Jesus had. It wasn't wasn't the Holy Spirit just gently guiding. He had such a burden to get right to his mission. That it was forcefully driving him into that, compelling him to do that. So Jesus was literally driven into the wilderness by that burden of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we think about wilderness, <coughs> brought him out into the wilderness, you might think, especially here in Colorado, wherever you are online, it might be a little bit different. But here in Colorado, if you're going into the wilderness, you might be thinking, Oh, cool, he probably set up his tent by a, by a stream and the mountains, and maybe it was under a, under a couple trees, and he could hear the aspens rustling and the little rush of the creek right there. It was probably pretty nice to hang out in the wilderness. He needed that little R&R. No, here's what the wilderness looked like. This is the wilderness just north of the Dead Sea region, kind of outside of Jericho. This is the region Jesus was driven into, okay? That's not a picnic. It's hot. It's dry. The nearest body of water is the Dead Sea, which you can't drink. That was a brutal place. And it's a real place, the real place that exists today. In fact, shortly I'm going to talk to you about the mountain that Jesus was tempted to hurl himself down off of. Let me show you a picture of what that place looks like today. That's, that's what's traditionally called the Mount of Temptation. There's a Greek Orthodox monastery that's there. It's actually built into the side of the mountain but that those are the cliffs that we'll see later where Jesus was was tempted to toss himself down off of. I show you these things so that if it's real, this is not some hypothetical maybe kind of this place sort of existed like, you know, Camelot whatever. This is this is real and you can go there today and you can see it. Now that monastery wasn't there at the time. He it wasn't uh, it's not a B&B that Jesus was hanging out at. It, uh, that's only a few hundred years old, but it's there. Now, some interpret this scripture in Mark, especially with how brief it is, to say that Jesus had been being tempted that whole 40 days through it. And you can kind of read it that way, and it looks like Jesus was there being tempted by Satan. I don't think he was being tempted all the way through, although maybe he was. There's no real biblical backup, whether he was or whether he wasn't. But here's what I know. That part where it says, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, the Gospel of Matthew expands on that just a little bit. Matthew 4.2, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Like, duh, if it's not, if it's not wrong to say that for Scripture. But he then became hungry. You probably could have left that off because most of us would think he's probably a little hungry at that point. Now, there's plenty of biblical precedent for the idea of a 40-day fast, and maybe that's another message for another time. But the first time we saw fasting in, in Scripture was on Mount Sinai, and it's back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 9.9, 9, it's when Moses went up unto the Sinai. And it says this, Deuteronomy 9, nine. when I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I remained on the mountain for 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. It happens again very shortly in verse eighteen of Deuteronomy. It's interesting to note that that it's Deuteronomy that sets up fasting. It's also Deuteronomy, as we'll see shortly, that Jesus quotes to refute the twisting of Scripture that the enemy is going to bring against him. We'll talk more about why that is significant here in just a minute. But it is. Let's go back to fasting. Fasting is considered a powerful spiritual discipline. We see that all throughout Scripture, along with prayer and giving. They are considered kind of the core spiritual disciplines um, that a believer would follow. The idea of fasting, though, is to deny your body of its physical needs to help you focus more on your spiritual needs. More importantly, your dependence on God. That's what it is, to set aside all those comforts. Jesus didn't have a lot of comforts when he was fasting out there in the middle of nowhere. Now, I want to point something out just because it's what I do. In Matthew 17.21, if you look in your Bible, you might notice either Matthew 17.21 is there or Matthew 17.21 is not there. Or maybe it's there but has brackets around it. Matthew 17.21 is one of those that's kind of debated by some some theologians. If you have a King James, here's how it reads, or, or an NIV even. However... It's where Jesus is talking about casting out demons. His disciples had been sent out, and his disciples came back and said, we, we couldn't drive that one out of that young boy. And Jesus says, Okay, this kind, according to this scripture, Matthew 17, 21, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It's also kind of written that way in Mark 9:29. But his disciples couldn't do it, and Jesus is explaining to him why. It's when he chastises them for their faith the size of a mustard seed, if you have that. Now, here's what I want to share with you. Translations differ based on this, the rules and the structure that they use to get that translation. The King James Version is a little bit different in many of the others. Most of the translations, most of the major ones anyway, use this idea called the law of first mention. The law of first mention essentially says that whatever the oldest documented writing about this event or whatever happened is probably the most reliable. The idea being that the more it's retold or the more it's recopied, that might be changed up or mixed up a little bit. So if we go back to the very first example of that thing being written down, it's probably the most accurate. It's what most uh, historical and literary scholars use, but the King James is not tied to that. King James looks more at what they feel is more accurate based on a number of functions or features. If you want more information on that, join us for the bedrock class that's coming up because I talk a lot about translations. The thing is, that idea of prayer and fasting, the end fasting, is not listed in the earliest manuscripts. So the oldest, oldest examples we can find of that scripture, it doesn't say end fasting. Doesn't mean that it's not a spiritual discipline. So I just want to point that out because sometimes those differences can trip people up. Let's move on though. Okay, being tempted by Satan. Being tempted by Satan. Think about this. Jesus had just, right before his baptism, he had walked the 60 miles from Nazareth to the site in the Jordan where he was baptized. Did it by himself, walked 60 miles through that kind of country. It wasn't all like that. Some of it was a little bit nicer. But that's a long walk. He goes in and he immediately is baptized by John the Baptist. Okay? And then, does he take time to chill and recover? Does he hang out? Does he talk for a while? Regain his strength before he goes? No. Scripture tells us immediately he jumps into the next thing. He's going to be tempted, but he goes right out. After that 60-day trek, he goes out and he fasts for 40 days. He is in a vulnerable physical condition right now, and that's when the enemy comes in. But we think it might be accidental. Oh, look, Jesus is, Jesus is weak, so the enemy is going to come in. When the Holy Spirit took him out there, it was because he knew that would be exactly the thing that would lure Satan in, where Satan gets his first defeat. Now, we see in Scripture here, Jesus really is having a conversation with Satan. Some scholars say it was Satan in physical form. Jesus could see Satan standing right there. Some say it was just Satan in the spirit. We don't know for sure. We do know, though, that Satan and his demons masquerade often as angels of light. And let me show you how I think this kind of went down. First of all, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, 15 says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also descri- disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So they're going to get what they deserve. But when we read in Matthew 4, 3, right here, And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. I think it's possible that Satan in this instance was masquerading as one of those angels of light. Now, Jesus, being who he was, would have known that. But immediately, he comes and he says, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Immediately, going right for the heart of what Jesus was probably most, in his his flesh, in his physical part, was the most concerned about. Where's my food coming from? It's been 40 days. It's been 40 days. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm hot. I'm sunburned. I'm thirsty. All these things. And Satan comes right in and goes, hey, if you're a son of God, why don't you just make these rocks become bread? Two things happening there. He's tempting him with the thing he was probably the most, the most focused on outside of the spiritual realm. But he's also kind of using his pride. How many, if that was you, If you had just been anointed as the son of God, and you're out there, and Satan comes, if that's really who you are, why don't you just turn those? How many of us would not go, oh, watch me, if that's who I am? Watch what I'm about to do. Most of us in our pride would immediately do that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Satan is is trying to dig at Jesus' pride and also going for that thing that he was most craving, which would have been food at that time. But Jesus' answer, he doesn't say, hey, good idea, I'll do that. He counters with this Matthew 4 4, we hear this from. And it said, But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, my translation, you see it's all caps there? That's not the caps lock got stuck on, and that's a mistake. That means it's quoting Old Testament Scripture. And in this case, it's Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus is reaching back to Deuteronomy, and he's saying this, "...and he humbled you and let you go hungry." Now, that's from the time when Moses was with the Israelites out in the desert. They had been wandering the desert for 40 years almost at this point. And Moses is telling them this, "...and he," meaning God, "...humbled you and let you go hungry." And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, in order to make you understand that man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. They had just been given an extensive list of commands that had come from the mouth of the Lord, and yet they continued to stray. But we're hungry, but we're tired, but we want to do this. And Moses is telling them that. It's interesting that Jesus pulls back to that moment to pull that scripture to challenge Satan. The next thing, next challenge, again, from Matthew, Matthew 4, 5, and 6. Then the devil took him along into the holy city, Jerusalem, that would be, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up, so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91. Satan is... is is repeating that accurately. That is what Scripture says. Jesus recognizes what that is. It's being twisted in its, youth, in its use. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus replies back. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he himself then is directly quoting Deuteronomy six sixteen that says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. it's a great. If you want to read that section in Deuteronomy, it's a, it's a fantastic um, example. But again, Jesus' counters coming right out of Deuteronomy. Now going on to the next challenge, Matthew 4, 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain, probably that one I showed you, or at least one nearby, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So what does Jesus say? It's recorded in Matthew 4.10, the very next verse. And Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that itself also comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14, where it says, "You You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. So again, Jesus going back to Deuteronomy to refute those things that Satan is accusing him with. It's important because of what was going on. Every single time that Moses would leave the Israelites in the desert to go hear a new word from the Lord, every single time the Israelites would lose their minds. And they would start building temples, and they would start building idols, and they would start doing all these things. And then Moses would get a fresh word from the Lord. He would come back. He would give that to them, and they'd go, oh, yeah, you're right. Good point. And then he'd go, okay, you guys good? Hold on to what I just told you, what the Lord God just commanded us. Hang on. I'm going to go get some more. And he leaves. And the minute he leaves, they lose their minds again. Happens again and again and again. And so that's why Jesus is pulling out of Deuteronomy, saying, this, this is not a new thing. This temptation I'm facing from Satan, this has been going on from all the way back from the beginning. And it doesn't matter how fresh the word of the Lord is if you don't hang on to it, if you don't know it, if you can't recognize when it's being twisted to use against you. And that's the example Jesus has given us here. So then to move on in this, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Now, Mark's the only gospel that uses this phrase. He was with the wild animals. And I think he's doing that for his specific audience in Rome. They were were used to being safe. They were inside the city of Rome. They didn't have a lot of wild animals running the street. It was a place of safety for them. But he's saying Jesus was out. He had no comforts. He had no safety. He just had to rely on the Spirit to help him in this place. Now, Matthew and Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke, that is, complete this little encounter here by saying this. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels came up and began to serve him. So Jesus is continually going back to Deuteronomy here, quoting Scripture to counter Satan's temptations. Does it all the time? And so let's bring it back to the original audience. Let's bring it back to those people there in Rome that this was written for, they were looking for a solution to their problems. Much like the Christians in Afghanistan must be doing right now, or the people who are even thinking whether they're going to follow this guy named Jesus. How's this going to help me with the thing that's happening right outside the gate? How's this helping me that I'm not sure if I'm going to make it alive from where we are today to my home? How's this going to help me? And they're studying Scripture At that point, the scripture just would have been the Old Testament scriptures. They're studying those things to try and find some answers, try and find some way out. And Mark is writing this to them without all the in-depth things like all all the specifics of spiritual warfare and things. He's very brief because they're not quite ready for that sort of depth. They just want to know how this is going to help them today. So Jesus, in his time of his great physical weakness, and he's, he's in this place where if he's ever going to be able to be tempted, it would be now. He's hungry, tired, hot, thirsty, and this would be the time. But here's the thing. He is able to resist Satan and make him flee, cause him to flee, because Jesus is secure in his identity. He knows who he is. He knows he's the son of God. He knows Scripture. He knows Scripture well enough to see when it's being twisted. Those two things right there are kind of our takeaway from this entire message today. We need to know our identity in Christ Jesus. We need to know who we are. And standing on the firm foundation of who we know we are, then you couple that with a knowledge of Scripture because Scripture gets twisted all the time. Is anybody shocked by that? truth gets twisted and it doesn't get twisted so the point to where it's obvious it's very subtle and Jesus knew that and he was able then to see that's what you're saying Satan is correct that's what is written down but that's not what it meant and you're using it to say something that it didn't mean Jesus knows that and the idea here then was to illustrate that to the Roman believers who were looking for answers they're looking for okay this scripture right here that tells us that God's going to smite our enemies, right? Okay, no, it says God did it then. He may not do it now. Let's look at that a little bit more. That's what they're looking for. But Jesus is telling them, more accurately, the scripture is telling them that the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had, the same access to the scriptures that Jesus had, is what you have today. And Jesus didn't pull the deity card. He didn't pull the God card. He didn't He didn't smite Satan with lightning bolts that flew from his fingers. He resisted and had victory over Satan's schemes by the very same weapons and tools that we have today. As followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. As followers of Christ, we have access to the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit to illuminate and explain those Scriptures to us. We have those very same tools Jesus was compelled into the wilderness to suffer this, to show us that it can be done, to show us that that's all it takes. You can't say, yeah, Jesus stood against the devil because, look, he's Jesus. He stood against the devil because he had the very same authority and the very same tools that we have been given as disciples of Jesus. Hebrews two seventeen eighteen, 18, in fact, says this, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It says right there Jesus went through these things so that he could identify with us so that we could identify with him. And so that we could see in his time of weakness and temptation, this is what Jesus did. He didn't pull the deity card. The same weapons Jesus used are the ones we have today. And this exchange that we see are the very same tactics. Might be different words, might be different situations, but the very same tactics that he was using on Jesus, he uses with us today. We see this immediately after Jesus was commissioned by his father and received his father's blessing. This is who you are. This is your purpose. Go do it. Immediately, Satan swoops in and says, I'm going to try and steal that. I'm going to try and derail you for what your father has. And it's the same thing we have happened today. But if we know who we are, our status as sons and daughters of God and our authority we can stand against that. Romans 8:14, Paul writes it like this. 14 and 15. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, "Abba, Father." He has to reaffirm that because you're not some orphan somewhere. You are a son or a daughter of God, and that's who you are. And don't let anybody else tell you that's not who you are because that's who God says you are. You are not a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or a failure or weak or anything. None of those worldly descriptions matter If you know that you are a son or a daughter of God, that authority, if we really grasp that and we have an understanding of Scripture, that will allow us to stand in the face of anything that the enemy can throw at us. And let me show you how it works in our our lives today. We play directly into Satan's game. We play his game when we say phrases like this. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but just listen if you've either heard this or maybe you've said it yourself. God would want me to be happy. We usually fill it with, therefore, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. God would not want me to go hungry. Or God would want me to stand up for myself. God would want me to stand up for someone else. God would want me to point out sin when I see it. God would want to reward me for, fill in the blank, Or God would want me to, again, fill in the blank. Anytime we say those things out of an assumption, surely God would want me to, Satan will come in and say, yeah, and there's scripture that says that. And this backs up what you want to do. He will twist it, and he'll try and convince us that a sinful path is not dangerous and more more dangerously that that sinful path is the right way to go. I've seen many, many people take Scripture and allow it to be twisted, or maybe they're the ones twisting it to fit what they want it to say. And it can seem hopeless, but it's not hopeless. It is not hopeless. In fact, this message, I hope what you take away, is that this message is a message of hope and conviction. Hope that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need to stand against what the enemy can throw at us. Everything. Ephesians 6.11. Ephesians 6.11. It's the scripture that talks about armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so that you're able to, you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. One of the pieces of the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So that kind of hope, and then also conviction to study the Word. When I was going through and writing my notes here, I had about ten scriptures about why we should study the Word and i thought probably don't need 10 let's go down to 3 2nd timothy 2:15 be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth accurately handling the word of truth and then romans 15:4 for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope And there's so many more. If you ever ever feel at a loss for direction, if you ever feel that things are so out of control, they're murky, they're dark, what's right, I don't know, I don't know which way to go, I don't know whether to do this or to do that, Psalm 119, 105, it's the last scripture for today. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You couple that with the Holy Spirit in you. And that is an assurance that we never have to walk in darkness. We never have to walk not knowing what the next step is. If we do, we have no one to blame but ourselves for allowing Scripture to be twisted or refusing to seek the Holy Spirit. We just pray. Those are weapons that will always stand against what Satan does. So if if your life right now looks out of control and you have no idea which way to go, turn to him. Pray, have the Holy Spirit show you what direction to go. Look at the Word. Study the Word. That's why we study the Word so much in this church. You need to know Scripture. And you need to, more importantly, not be able to quote chapter and verse, but to look at a Scripture and understand that how it's used is supposed to be this way and not how somebody's twisting it. So many times Scripture is twisted. That's exactly what Satan's doing. He's not misquoting it. He's misusing it. And that's a sin and that's dangerous. I hope that this has convicted you to study the word. I hope this has convicted you to pray and to press into the Holy Spirit because with those things, there will be no darkness that's too much for him to overcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you gave us your word all those thousands of years ago so that we could see your direction. And then you gave us your Holy Spirit so that we don't just have to rely on what we read. You will show us how that applies in our life. You will show us the truth and you will show us what is counterfeit and what is not. And so, Lord, I repent of any of those times where I have just made an assumption without seeking you first. So, Lord, help me Help me to seek you first when I see a choice and I don't know whether to go right or to the left. Help me to first seek you in everything that I do. Help give me the strength and the time and the, and the perseverance to study your word so that I can be a worker approved and who rightly handles the word. Lord, let me never be accused of twisting your word to make it say what I want it to say. Lord, let me be a reflection of who you are to this world that desperately needs more of you. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name.